Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horns, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then the God will be able to, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, and turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of God of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. This is the word of the Lord. You all may be seated. Glad to see that you're all unfrozen this morning. I was worried that you're just going to be like icicles out there, but you know, we got a little bit warm. Uh, so this morning we're going to be continuing our series called The Story I Tell, where we're looking at God's story of redemption through people in the Old Testament. And this is a story that we're diving into in the beginning of this year because I, I want to help us see that God is a personal God that he's still at work, he's still redeeming the lost, he's still stepping into our stories. That's the point of this series that we're into. And the, the second point of it is to get us realizing that we have a part to play in that story, that we get to communicate that story to others in the world around us. And so far through the, the weeks that we've looked at, we've mainly focused on people whose lives have been marred by personal sin, either their own sin or personal sin that's been uh, committed towards them. Uh, but today what I want to do is I want us to turn our attention to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because I want, us to sh- I want to show us what courageous faithfulness in exile looks like. What courageous faithfulness in the midst of a secular culture that doesn't worship God looks like. Because I think there's much that we can learn from their story. Because we ultimately find ourselves in a very similar situation in this day and age. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are people that belong to another land. They belong to the land of Israel, but they are exiles in the land of Babylon. And I think it's really helpful to just set the tone before we dive into this uh, too deep that we need to see ourselves as exiles in the same way. That we are exiles in a land that doesn't belong to us in the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are exiles. We don't belong to a different earthly kingdom like they do, but instead we belong to a heavenly one. 
And by remembering this, what it does is it helps to instill in us that we are primarily, primarily citizens of heaven. That is our, our primary identity. We are primarily citizens of heaven, and we have been sent as ambassadors of King Jesus to do his business among people who don't yet know him. That is our, our job as his ambassadors. As people who are in relationship with Jesus, we have communion with God. And, and that is wonderful. It's something that we should celebrate, that we get to have communion with God because of what he has done, because of the grace that he has given us. We have communion with God. But we also must remember that we have been entrusted with the story of God and how we live in the midst of exile matters. How we live in the midst of exile matters. It's not just about our personal relationship with Jesus. It's about us doing something with that for the sake of others. And so before we dive into our scripture, our main scripture this morning, I want to take a pit stop in Philippians 3 for just a moment. Because I want to, I want you to listen to the encouragement that Paul gives the Philippian church while he's literally imprisoned. And that's a key portion there. Paul is writing this to a church in Philippi while he's sitting in the midst of prison for proclaiming the good news of God in the midst of a secular culture. So listen to this from Philippians 3 verses 17 through 21, because I think this is going to help us this morning. As Paul writing, he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you, as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And the reason that I want us to take a pit stop here in Philippians is because I think Paul does such a wonderful job of setting our focus where it needs to be. Paul's charge is for the Philippian Christians to keep their eyes on those who faithfully follow Jesus and not to get bogged down on the unfaithfulness of others. Paul is saying, no, don't worry about all of the other nonsense, okay? Because there is nonsense in the world, amen? We, we can agree on that. And it was the same thing in Paul's day. Remember, he's writing this while he's sitting in a Roman prison. Like he knows that there's nonsense all around him. He knows that people are living as enemies of God. He is literally imprisoned because of that. And Paul is writing this to the Philippian Christians saying, don't worry about it. Don't focus all of your attention and your effort on that. Instead, focus your effort on those who are living faithfully for Jesus. And oh man, is that different from what we do? I, I know it's not any of you guys, it's just me that I'm talking to. It's so different than what we do. I, I know that our propensity is to tend to look towards the unfaithfulness of the world more than the faithfulness of those within the church. It reminds me of a, a Mr. Rogers story, and I don't quote Mr. Rogers often, but it's been on my mind this morning, and it didn't make it in the notes, the first revision, but it's still there. Um, you know, Mr. Rogers tells a story where a kid's writing to him and saying, what do I do about all the, the bad stuff that's on the news? And he tells a story that his mom told him, look for the helpers. Look for those that are out there doing the good work. Look for those that are out there in the midst of it, not on all the bad stuff that's happening. And in the same way, it's true for us that we shouldn't look at all the nonsense that's going on in the world, but instead we should look towards those who are faithfully following Jesus. We would be such different people if we learn to heed this message, if we learn to do as Paul writes for us to do here. Paul isn't saying for us to be unaware of the sinful world around us. That's not what he's telling us to do at all. Instead, he's telling us to not let it consume us. 
Not let it consume everything that's within us so that we're just focused on that. Instead of focusing on others, Paul tells the church not just to look at him, but to imitate him and others who ultimately find their citizenship in heaven. Those who are walking out the way of Jesus in the midst of a secular world. And he brings it all together right at the end by reminding the Philippian Christians that their ultimate citizenship isn't on the earth. It's not in their, their earthly homes. It's not in their earthly countries. It's their citizenship is in heaven. And that God will come to make all things right. That he will come and transform their lowly bodies into bodies that look like the resurrected Jesus. This underscores the point that Paul is making, that they don't have to go around like chicken little saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. That's not what they have to do. They can rest in knowing that God is still seeking and saving the lost, that he's still at work in the world around them, and that one day he will make all things new, that he will keep his promise. In the meantime, their task is to imitate. People like Paul who are faithfully following the way of Jesus. To share the good news of Jesus without complaining, without focusing on all the outrage, even if it means great pain and suffering for themselves. He's telling them to renew their minds. And it's something that we need to do today. We need to renew our minds. We need to approach the world around us differently. See, here's the thing that I I want us to get this morning. We can get so focused on how anti-Christ our culture is that we forget that we're called not to condemn, but to show the good news of Jesus Christ. We can get so focused, so tunnel vision on just all the bad stuff that's happening, that everyone's living anti-Christ. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. Instead, we should be people seeing where things are, going to those and telling them of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. It's our task in the world around us. It's the only hope for the world around us to live as Christ-like ambassadors. If you've been around here uh, for any amount of time, you've often heard me talk about how the early Christians lived in the midst of a Roman empire who despised them. I I like going back to the Christians in the first few centuries of Christianity because they show us just this beautiful embodiment of how we are to live today. Though they faced incredible persecution that we can't even imagine, they still lived faithfully for Jesus. They weren't focused on tearing down or condemning the culture around them. Sure, they they saw the sin. I'm not saying they didn't see the sin, but they weren't focused on condemning or tearing down. Instead, they were focused on showing people primarily by how they lived that Jesus was the better way. That they had discovered a different way of life. That they had discovered true life and they were living as if it meant something for him. Yes, they talked about sin, but it didn't consume their thinking or their approach to other people. They lived faithfully in exile so that others would see Jesus in them and desire to turn towards Jesus. To repent of their sin and receive his forgiveness. I want to read you a couple quotes from church historian Dr. Alan Kreider. He notes that it was not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight with outsiders. It was what they did and embodied. It was how the Christians lived that showed the world around them that there is a different way of life. He goes on to say that people looked at the Christians— They looked at how they lived and they intuited that another way of living was possible and that the Christian way of living was worth so much that they would give up everything to seek it. One uh, early church father would say, we don't speak great things, we live them. 
It wasn't just their words. It wasn't just how they talked. It was how they lived. This truth of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who forgives the world of sin, so got into them that they lived their lives completely differently. And that made such an impact in the world around them that it quite literally turned the world upside down. Did it happen overnight? Not at all. It took hundreds of years of faithfully following Jesus, but the result was a world that was turned upside down. How we live matters. How we look at the culture around us matters. The story that we tell about ourselves, the story that we tell about the culture around us ultimately influences how we live in the world. The cultural moment that we live in is one that's built upon outrage. It's built upon outrage, and you and I have been so conditioned to it. I I don't think we've purposely put ourselves in in an outrage culture, but I think over time it has worn us down and worn us down and worn us down that we've become conditioned to not respond in the Spirit, but to respond in the flesh. We've been so conditioned by our current cultural moment of outrage that we fail to see Jesus at work around us. Because of this, we have become accomplices of nominalism. We're accomplices to this way of life, this Christianity that costs very little. And instead of that, we need to throw that all away and instead become catalysts for awakening. Putting aside the nominalism, the everyday Christianity, the least common denominator Christianity, and instead be catalysts for awakening to say that God has done it before, he can do it again. That he's turned the world upside down before and he can do it again today. We need to rediscover our place within the story of God. Remembering that our primary calling is to be with Jesus to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did, as Pastor John Mark Comer says. You and I cannot afford to be sideline critics. We can't afford to sit on the sidelines and just condemn what we're seeing in the world. Instead, we must be active participants in God's story to renew the world around us. One scholar that I came across this week, he says this. He says, the early church didn't say, look what the world is coming to. Instead, they said, look what has come into the world. Such a different perspective. Not look at what the world is coming to. Look at what has come into the world. Look at Jesus who has come to redeem all of the world. The story of God coming into the world to bring dead men to life, it grabbed a hold of the early church. It grabbed a hold of them. It shook loose everything that needed to be shaken loose. And it sent them forth with a good news message. A message that there's a different type of life and it needs to get a hold of us once again. We need to regain a sense of courageous faithfulness so that others might come to see Christ in us and turn to the Lord. Amen? It's what we need today. It's what our world needs today. And so let's look at our passage this morning. I'm going to reread Daniel 3, 13 through 18, because I want us to see what this courageous faithfulness looks like. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music— If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So like I said, this comes in the context of Israel being exiled. They're living in the land of Babylon, and they're ultimately being judged by God. God's judgment has come upon the people of Israel because of their continued unfaithfulness toward him. They're being judged because they haven't faithfully followed the way of God. And we find ourselves in the midst of this story, and it kind of jars us a moment because we expect these people who are living within a strange land that worships strange gods, not to faithfully follow God. Because after all, they're being judged by God for not faithfully following him. But when we come to this story, we're kind of jarred a bit because we see these men who are faithfully following after God, who even though they've been put in a position by a foreign king, that they're still following God faithfully. They're committed to following him no matter what the consequences are. And that's something that's key for us. If we were to look back at verses 1 through 12, what we would see is that King Nebuchadnezzar has erected a huge 90-foot-tall statue. He's casted in gold, and he summoned all the leaders in his kingdom that he's put in place to a dedication ceremony. He's called them all into one place, and ultimately he's probably trying to unite the kingdom, saying, this is your God, you, you uh, subjects of mine. This is your God. This is the one that you're supposed to worship. I'm trying to have unity within my kingdom. And he tells them, at the sound of music, all the people are to bow down, and they're to sing do, a deer. No, sorry. That's so- sound of music. They're to bow down and worship this handmade God. They're to bow down and worship. And if they don't, if they don't do this, they're to be killed in a fiery furnace. Likely the one that was used to make this fake God in the first place. So at this ceremony, some of the leaders approach the king and they tell him that these three Jewish men, that the king has appointed in parts of his kingdom, that they don't worship this statue. They don't bow down. They don't serve the gods of the king. And this is a big thing. It's a big deal. These three Jewish men, they refuse to bow. They refuse to to live their life differently. Even though they're in the midst of exile, Israel being judged for their unfaithfulness, we find a remnant of people willing to live faithfully and righteously before God, even though they know the consequences of doing so. Their allegiance is to the God of Israel, even though they're living in the midst of a foreign culture that worships other gods. They know because they are followers of God that to worship any other God is sin. And they refuse to waver. They are steadfast in following their God. They're steadfast in following his commands, even in front of the king. Even in front of the authority over them. They say, no, we won't bow down. We won't worship. We serve the God of Israel. But before we go on, I also think it's important for us to note what these men didn't do in this situation. It's easy to talk about what they did in this situation, but I want us to talk about what they didn't do here as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't ostracize the king. They don't ostracize his subjects for not following their god. They don't yell out in outrage or condemn them or post about them on social media. They simply remain faithful. They remain faithful in the midst of this pagan culture, in the midst of a world that's following after other gods. 
Let's go back to verses 16 through 18 again. I want to look at how these men respond to the king. As these Hebrew men, as they're before the king, they tell him of the power of God. They tell him that, yes, even if they're thrown into the fire, that their God can save them. Nebuchadnezzar's like, what God is going to save you? Can any God do it? And they're like, our God can. Our God can save us. And that even if he doesn't, even if we die, he's still worth following. His goodness is still worth following. He can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to be faithful to him. And what we see in these three Hebrew men is undoing all the unfaithfulness that we see throughout the Old Testament. Because typically what we see in Israel throughout the Old Testament is that as soon as God doesn't do what they want them to do, they're like, okay, we're out of here. But then these three men are saying, no, no matter what happens, even if we're thrown into the fiery furnace, even if death comes our way, we're going to faithfully serve him. We're going to faithfully serve this God. And this is a key thing that we need to learn. I think this is a type of humble confidence in the Lord. And I think that's where true power is at. We should be people who are patient in affliction, as Paul writes in Romans 12, and as these Hebrew men display here. Patient in affliction. When we do this, we're showing that our confidence is ultimately in God to build his kingdom. We're saying that, God, you can build your kingdom. It's not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon me. It's us saying, God, you, no matter what happens, will be glorified. Your purposes will go forth. And when we let God be God, he's a lot better at it than we are. When we let God be God, he works in ways that don't make sense in our limited understanding. They don't make sense to us because we are not God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, as the prophet Isaiah says. We need to learn to trust in God as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do here. Let's go ahead and jump to Daniel 3, 19 through 23. Because the king isn't too happy with their response. Go figure. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar isn't impressed with their response. He's not impressed with their confidence in the Lord. And his response to the the faithfulness of these three men is to destroy them. His response is, no, you don't. You don't get to say that to me. You don't get to live like that. I will destroy you. And in a show of power, he orders the furnace to be heated up as much as it possibly can be heated up. He gets the strongest soldiers he can to tie up these men so that they can't escape whatsoever. So they just have to endure the pain as it's coming. He commands them be thrown into the fire and they're thrown in. And this is where the story should naturally end, right? This is where it naturally makes sense to end. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand up saying that we are going to faithfully follow God. And their king's like, no, you're not. Throws them into the fire. End of story. 
The fire was so hot that even the soldiers were killed. These Hebrew men should have been killed instantly, but they weren't. But just for a moment, like we did last week, I want you to consider what would have happened if they would have been killed. What if that was the end of the story? Would their faithfulness have been in vain? Would it have been in vain? Not at all. God is bigger than those who fight against him. He is still able to accomplish his ways. He is still able to do much. Even if the Hebrew men were killed, God would still be on the throne. God would still be enthroned and his redemptive purposes would still be working their way in the world. I want to take you back to the early church for just a moment. Uh, Tertullian, who's an early church father who lived uh, from about 150 AD to 220 AD, he once wrote to Roman officials in a work, called, in a work of apologetics. Uh, these Roman officials were persecuting the church, and ultimately Tertullian is trying to write to them saying that this is why we faithfully follow God. This is why we faithfully follow him. And he says this to these Roman officials. He says, the more you kill Christians, the more Christianity grows. The more you kill us, the more we grow. He would ultimately go on to say that the blood of the martyrs is like seed in the Roman Empire. That the blood of those who had been killed by the Roman officials were like seeds scattered, making Christians grow all the more. Even if these men would have died, it wouldn't have stopped God. It never has before. The evil deeds of man are never able to quench the flame of the Spirit. They're not. They're never able to quench the flame of the Spirit, and we need to stop acting like they can. They can't quench the flame of the Spirit. As Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Nothing. Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill you. Fear the one that can throw your body into hell. We are to fear God, not man. We should be willing to follow God even if it, ends, it makes us end up in the fiery furnace. Even if we're in that place, because God is able to do much more than we can imagine, and we must not lose sight of that. He builds his kingdom, not us. He builds his kingdom, not us. He builds his kingdom, not us. That's something that we need to have written on our hearts. He uses us in that, absolutely. But he is the one who builds his kingdom. All right, let's look at Daniel 3, 24 through 25. These men are thrown into the fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Something incredible has happened. The Hebrew men are rescued by God. And here we see another theophany of God, God, God coming near to these men. It's a foretaste of the incarnation of Jesus Christ where God himself comes near into our world, into our suffering, into our pain to make a way of salvation. God has personally and radically saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by stepping into their story. It's what he does to us as well. And this communicates so much to us about God's character. It communicates that our God is a personal God. It communicates that he, he loves us, that he desires to draw near to us. 
But it also communicates that God saves those who place their faith and trust in him. God saves those who place their faith and trust in him. In this case that we're reading of in Daniel 3, it's a case of salvation that's a physical salvation from death. Even if our faith leads us to the fire, we can have confidence that God will save us. In our case, we may not always be delivered physically. It may not always be a physical deliverance for us. We may cry out to God for salvation. We may have all the faith in the world. We may have all the trust in the world. We may have all the allegiance in the world. And sometimes God doesn't answer that prayer. I'm not saying that if we have faith, everything's going to be hunky-dory in our lives. Is hunky-dory a phrase up here in the north as well? I'm like, sometimes my idioms don't. I can count on Sam to know it. Everything is all right and just fine. We may not always be delivered from the physical pain, from the physical suffering here and now, but we can rest assured that our faith in Christ grants us eternal life by his grace. That even if others kill us, even if it results in death, we will rise again in the resurrection of the saints at Jesus' second coming. They can't do anything. And I'll fully admit that sometimes this, this is difficult for us, right? It's easy theoretically. It's easy here on a Sunday morning inside the church walls. But it's difficult in real life. It's difficult to grasp this. And I think it's the reason that we have such a hard time not fighting back. I think we can often find ourselves asking the question, what's the point of faithfulness if it results in pain and suffering? Maybe that's just me. Maybe you guys are holier than that, and that's okay. But if you find yourself asking this question, it's okay as well. What's the point in faithfulness? What's the point of doing all this if I'm still going to have pain, if I'm still going to have suffering? And I think that's a valid question, but I don't think it's the ultimate question that we're asking. I think it's the the politically correct question that we're asking. I think what we really want to know is this. How do I know that this following Jesus thing isn't in vain? How do I know that it isn't in vain? One of our core fears is that we will waste our lives. That what we do with our lives isn't going to measure up. That it's going to be worthless. That we'll miss out on the good life, whatever that means to us. It's a core fear that we, we have. But life with God, life with God, even if it results in pain, even if it results in suffering, even if it results in trials and persecution, is of infinitely more worth than any vision of the good life outside of God. Life with God is worth it. When we live for ourselves, we're always trying to find meaning. We're always in search of it here, 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 and here. If I'll just grasp this, if I'll just attain this, then I'll have meaning. Then I'll be happy. But we know that that's all an illusion. Life with God gives us meaning and purpose and inherent value, even if it comes at great cost, even if it comes with suffering and trial and persecution. And I think if we can grab hold, we can grab hold of the good news of the story of God, then no matter what we face, there's the resurrection No matter what pain we have, one day there'll be no pain. No matter what tears we cry now, one day there'll be no tear. If we can grab hold of that, and only if we grab hold of that, can we live courageous faithfulness in the midst of exile. If we can grab hold of it, it's fuel for our lives, fuel for the race. The gospel is good news. 
It is good news. It's the news that though we were enemies of God, though we lived contrary to the way of God, Jesus made peace for us through his life, death, and resurrection. That he took our place upon the cross. That he bore our sins in his body. That he washed them away by his blood. It's good news for us that in Christ, we have a hope that's unshakable. It doesn't mean that life is going to be hunky-dory, since you guys know that word now. It doesn't mean that everything is going to be great. It doesn't mean that we won't have pain. It doesn't promise endless happiness in this life. It means that we will still suffer. We will still have trials. We are exiles in a world that actively lives as enemies of God. And when we faithfully follow after God, if we're doing it correctly, we're promised persecution. If we faithfully follow Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, okay, then I'll rescue you from everything. He promises us persecution. He promises us persecution. But if we faithfully follow him, he is our prize. He is our prize. Nothing else matters. Temporary pain doesn't matter. Jesus is the prize. We need to remember that. We need to remember that not only does God forgive us, not only has he washed away our sins, but he's pulled up a seat at his table for us. He's made us part of his family. When we place our faith in Jesus, we're united with him. He no longer sees us for all of our foolishness. He sees us as a beloved son of God, a beloved daughter of God. God sees us through Jesus. We're made new, no longer part of the old yucky stuff, but we have new life. We receive a hope that cannot be shaken, a hope that remains true no matter what our circumstances may say. Because even when we're in the fire, we know that another is in the fire with us. We know that there's one with us and that he will never leave us and that he will never forsake us. That he walks with us, that he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. That he knows our temptation. He knows what we're going through. He knows our pain because he lived it himself. He is God who loves us, who desires us, who's leading us to this life that's truly life. We have to hold fast to the promise that one day all things will be made new that heaven will invade earth, and that God will fully dwell with man. It's the end of the book, folks. It's the end of the book. It's what our hope is in. It's what we rejoice in. It's what we know to be true, that one day all of it will be made new. We must hold tightly to that because he will do it. He will do it. While all of that's true, I think where we have to be careful is to make sure that we don't allow our future hope to make us ineffective here and now. There's a a saying that you can be of, uh, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly use. And usually people are saying that, that you know, you're so spiritual, you love Jesus so much that you don't even care about any of the things of the earth. But I think where we often actually uh, see that to be true is when we're so heavenly minded that we're just worried about the next life that we forget that God has given us a task here and now. He has given us a task and a responsibility here and now. I think we have a tendency towards selfishness within the church. And not me. It's the other guy, right? What I mean by that is often we only care about our personal relationship with Jesus. Like, I'm good. I've done it. I've come to Jesus. I have nothing to worry about. And because of that, we can often live 
selfishly. Yes, we should treasure our relationship with Christ. Absolutely. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. You have been redeemed. You have been reconciled. You have received new life. But remember, you were once lost. You were once separated. You were once living as an enemy of God. And God came near to you. Someone shared the good news of the gospel with you. Someone shared with you the message of reconciliation. We need to understand that a true, a true understanding of personal salvation will always overflow into how we interact with the world around us. If we are saved, if we understand salvation, if we understand that we were enemies with God and now we're not, it should fuel within us this desire to see others come into the family. Others to be reconciled, others to be redeemed, and we should live in light of that. The end of this story in Daniel 3, 26 through 30 is Nebuchadnezzar recognizing that the Hebrew God is to be praised. This, this man, this king who wanted nothing to do with this God, who wanted something else, wanted all people to worship his God, then goes and says, okay, this God's okay too. I won't prevent anyone from worshiping this God. What this shows us is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're exhibiting courageous faith with Christ-like character, others were able to connect with God. Because they lived their lives this way, others were able to connect with God. When you and I live Christ-like lives, when we live Christ-like lives in the midst of a culture that is anti-Christ, it will spell trouble for us just like it did with these men, but it will also attract others to God. It may spell trouble for us, but others will be attracted to God. We will never, ever, 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 okay, you guys get it? We will never convince others to follow Jesus by fighting fire with fire. It doesn't happen. We will never convince others to follow Jesus by fighting fire with fire. Our task is to be faithful to allow the spirit of the living God to do the supernatural work that only he can do. He is the one that convicts. He is the one that leads people to repentance. He is the one that speaks the gospel. He is the one that regenerates. He is the one that makes dead men live. We can't do that. We can be faithful. We can follow Jesus. We can walk in his ways. But God is the one that ultimately does the work. God is the one that builds his church. God is the one who builds his kingdom. We don't do it in our own. We don't do it in the flesh. We must forsake our flesh. Die to ourselves and allow the Spirit to rule over us fully. We need to put away our swords and start scattering seeds. It's the only way that this thing turns around. It's the only way that awakening happens. It's the only way that revival happens. And friends, that's what I long to see. Do you long to see it? Do you long to see the world awakened? Do you long to see the world revived? Then let's live, live this out. Let's go and take the good news of Jesus to a world that needs it. God would have us to be Christ-like in the midst of exile, even if, especially if it's hard. I want to end by reading this from Ephesians 4. This is Paul again writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When we do this, it will change the world around us. Let's be people, gospel people walking in gospel ways. It's the hope that our world needs. I want to end with just this one, one thing. Sorry, I'm going to quote Paul one more time. That's okay, right? You okay with me quoting scripture? In Galatians, Paul writes this, You foolish Galatians! 
Having begun by the Spirit, why are you so quickly returning to the flesh? We have a tendency within us to to see the Spirit at work, to submit to the ways of the Spirit, and then to turn and try and do it in our flesh later on. We have to remember what Jesus has done. We have to remember the work of the Spirit. We have to submit ourselves once again to the way of Jesus so that others might come to know him. This alone glorifies God and shows others his goodness. Will you stand with me as we pray? Father, we see the brokenness in our world. And we see the sin in our world. We see the idolatry in our world. And we know you see it too. We know it breaks your heart. And we know that you're doing something about it. And we know that one day, all will be made new. That you will redeem all this pain, all this mess. That you will establish justice. You will establish peace. And we also know that we've received that peace. We've received that hope. We've received your mercy and your grace. And I pray that you would give us a courageous faithfulness. And that we would look at the world around us and that we wouldn't get lost in condemnation We wouldn't get lost on saying, look at what the world has come to. But instead that we would focus on the good news of your gospel. The good news that you can take a pile of dead bones and make them live again. That you can take all of this that looks It looks quite dead. And that you can revive it once again. And I pray today that you would help us to become gospel people. That you would remind us of your mercy and your grace towards us. You would remind us of your gentleness towards us. And we ask that you would help us to live lives that honor you. Lives that are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. That our old man would die. That we would be renewed this morning. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.